Won't you kneel with me now as we approach the Lord in prayer? Oh, Father, this morning with hearts full of adoration for you, we've come to this place. We want to say thank you, first and foremost, for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for pouring out the wonderful treasures of heaven on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us today with beautiful music. Thank you for blessing us with your presence. And we pray, O oh Lord, as we have met here that within our hearts would stir uh, a desire to grow spiritually. For Lord, we know that you loved us enough to save us, but you love us even more so not to leave us where you found us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would stir within our hearts and within our minds to grow us so that we can be even more like you. And we recognize, Lord, that, that requires a miracle. For there's nothing within us that would bring us to that place except that you dwell within. And so we thank you, Lord, for the miracle that you will do with us. And we pray as Pastor Jerry opens the word this morning and breaks the bread of life, we pray, Lord, that you would touch his lips, anoint his words in Jesus' name. Amen. want to thank you for your kindness regarding appreciating us as the pastoral staff. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We, we appreciate you and we do really enjoy pastoring here because of you. Uh, Steve will sing again at the end of the sermon. When I was a young man, before I became a Christian, I was troubled, and I was trouble. I didn't care about a whole lot of things except myself. I was in the Coast Guard, stationed on an icebreaker in northern Michigan, U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Mackinac. And when I arrived, I was a third-class petty officer which required you to wear an insignia on your shirt. Well, I didn't do that. I didn't put one on my shirt because I had learned that if you demonstrate ability or if you have a position, more is expected of you. And I didn't care. I still got the pay of a third-class petty officer but I was treated like I was a fireman, which is a grade below that. So my responsibilities were less. I was one of those individuals that they could have made a movie about. The slacker. The guy who always found a way to be gone when there was heavy work being done. In fact, my normal routine was I'd be out at the bars at night, sleep or drink myself till I fell asleep, fall asleep, get up at the ship, wake up in time to check in and stuff like that, and then tell the people in the engine room where I worked that I had to go get a drink of water. 
and I'd be gone for two hours. I had a spot in our ship where we slept, our racks, beds as you would call them, had a cover on them that was about this high. Now I mean a cover along the edge. There was, the bottom one had just enough room that if you were careful, you could squeeze underneath it and scoot over and by the time you got underneath it, it was a little higher because the mattress sat higher on it. And just above the engine room, the floor was toasty warm and so that was my spot. I would sneak up under there and I would lay there in the vibration of the engine and it was warm and I would be out. That was me. Kind of proud of me, aren't you? Well, that was all good and well until one day I was suddenly awakened by people talking. Who's in here talking? Everyone's supposed to be at work. What kind of people run this ship, you know? And I looked and I could see from about here down on the legs they were brown, khaki-colored with brown shoes. Now, that meant officers. Not just any officers. It was the captain with his executive officer and the department heads walking around the ship doing an unscheduled inspection. Now, the captain was standing looking at the beds right where my head was. I was looking like this on the floor and I could see him. I could hear them talking. I could hear them pointing out things that needed to be fixed. I could hear them saying how they needed to tighten down on the crew to make sure they were making their beds properly. All those, I heard it all. And I just knew I was going to sneeze. But fortunately, I didn't. But I will tell you, that was the last time I slept on the floor under the bed during work hours. Because I recognized this could be an ugly scene if you're caught there. And you know, not getting caught is a pretty good motive for changing our behavior. When you think of consequences, it's a pretty good motive for changing behavior. But what do you do with this? What do you do with God who knows everything about you? You see, I got away with a lot of stuff back then because I simply wasn't caught. But what do you do with a God who knows everything you do? Who knows everything you did this week, everything you wanted to do this week, everything you thought this week? How do you live with a God like that? Where can you hide? Where can you run? How do you get a breather? You talk about pressure, and what if you're trying to be good and you simply are human and yet 
This being knows everything about you. I'd like to study that with you today. We're going to start by going to Exodus chapter 16. Moses is leading the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. The reluctant leader God had called. And in Exodus chapter 16, we discover their first struggle with hunger. Last week we studied about thirst. Now we're on to hunger. We start with verse 1. If you have your Bibles, fine. If not, you can follow on the screen. It's the New King James Version. And they journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been walking for just over a month. Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're thinking we would have been better off to be killed by God in Egypt than to die an awful death of starvation. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your murmurings against the Lord. But what are we that you murmur against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your murmurings which you make against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. Now it came to pass, as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. In the evening, quails showed up. Thousands of quails. 
And they ate that in the evening. In the morning, God provided bread. They called it manna. What is it? They took this manna. Sometimes they boiled it. Sometimes they baked it. Sometimes they ate it raw. They got it every morning. They collected it in omer apiece. It's about two quarts. And that food is what God used to sustain them throughout the wilderness. But there were requirements. On the sixth day, they were to get a double portion because none would show up on the Sabbath. They also were to collect it in the morning and to eat it because if they kept it through the night, it would breed worms and it would be rancid. So they were given the food, but there were restrictions associated with it. And that's why the God said, that's why the Lord says, I will give this to them to test them to see if they will be obedient to me. Now, let's go to verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So Moses is instructed to fill a container of the manna and to keep it for generation after generation after generation so the people would know what had happened to their forefathers. Verse 33. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And that's what they did. What's interesting is we read about that in the New Testament. This story we've just read happened about 1,400 years before Christ. I'd like you to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, and you'll find something that is written in that first generation of believers during that time. In Hebrews chapter 9, we begin reading in verse 2. For a tabernacle was prepared. Now they're rehearsing some history here. And what they're saying is a tabernacle was prepared. So let's get a timeline of things. They come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness. They end up at Mount Sinai. When they're at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, God speaks to them. They're told, do not go near the mountain or you will be killed. And so they rope it off. And there's, it's all on a smoke and there's thunder and the earth is shaking. And they humble themselves before God and they say, whatever he says to do, we will do. Then they're told the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Moses later would get written copy of those Ten Commandments. Now, while they're at Sinai, God instructed them how to worship Him. And it was done through a tabernacle, it was called. It was a tent. Sometimes you read a tent of meeting, and that's what it was. 
it had basically three sections to it. The outside of it was called the outer court. That's where the altar of burnt offering was. That's where the animal that was sacrificed would be placed on the altar of burnt offering. As you came towards the tent itself, you would come to the laver, which was a bowl of water. The priests would wash themselves with that water before they would go into the first room which was called the holy place. There on the right you would see the table of showbread. On the left you would see the seven branch candelabrum. Right directly in front you would have the altar of incense. Then there was a curtain. So the priests three would work together. They would come in, they would take the blood from the sacrifice, they would come in, they would mingle it with incense, put it on the altar of hot coals, and it would billow up in steam and smoke, and it would go over the top of that curtain, which didn't go all the way to the top. And then you had the most holy place. In the most holy place you had the Ark of the Covenant. So here we're reading about that in Hebrews chapter 9. All that would be developed at Mount Sinai. And we read verse 2, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, or the holy place. Holies. Sanctified means set apart for a holy purpose. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid in all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. So when God was with them at Mount Sinai and they made this Ark of the Testament, Ark of the Covenant, it was overlaid with gold. Inside of it was a golden bowl of manna. There it sat. It goes on to say, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So you have this sacred box, it was called. Inside that box you have a bowl of manna. Then you have Aaron's rod that budded. Then you have the Ten Commandments. On top of it you have two angels, cherubim, who sit looking down at the surface of it. Their wings spread out to either side. What can it all mean? And what does it have to do with living with a God who knows everything about us? Well, as we study this more clearly, I think the answers will come. First of all, we see the golden pot of manna. Let's look at Aaron's rod that budded, and I would encourage you to put your bulletin there, or leave your hand here in Hebrews, because we're coming back to it, but go back to the front of the Bible to Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16, we have a story that takes place after Mount Sinai. And the people are wandering in the wilderness and they're growing weary of it. In verse 1 it says, Now Korah, the son of Ithar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, 
the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and a guy named On. Those are the four that are identified. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. Well, who? We're told 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. So these four fellows, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On, come with 250 men, carefully selected from the different tribes. There are 12 tribes. And these men are known as men of renown. They're leaders in their community. They're leaders in their tribe. They're respected men. And they come before Moses. Verse 3, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy. Every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Do you understand what they're saying? They're saying, who made you the leader over us? When we look around, any one of us could do your job. In fact, the whole congregation is just as holy as you are. What gives you the right to think you can lead us? Well, <clears throat> let's go to verse 28. Same chapter. Moses calls everybody's attention to the situation. He says, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. Now those of you who have been with us through this study in Moses, you recognize Moses did not present himself before the Lord and say, Hey, I, I want to go do something. I want to do something powerful for you, so I think I'll deliver the Israelites. Are you in with me, God? No, quite, quite differently. God approached him and said, Moses, you're my man. Moses said, no, I'm not. I can't do it. And they had an argument. Moses is the leader because God said you're the leader. He did not want the position. Well, so Moses says, here's how you're going to know if God sent me or not. Verse 29, if these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. Strange thing to say. Moses says, look, here's how you're going to know if they're right or if I'm right. Be simple test. If they die natural deaths, a death like any person, then I'm a false leader. God did not assign me this position. I've usurped it. I've taken it on myself. I'm in error. I'm wrong. But he goes on. He even identifies how that death could come. Verse 30. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Whoa. Now if you were one of those men, imagine you'd want to be doing some serious thinking. Serious reflection. 
the captain's shoes are next to your head. Goes on, then it came to pass as he finished speaking all these words that the ground split apart under them and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them and they perished from among the congregation. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And you would think that was the end of it. That settled it. I mean, who can argue with that? What kind of man has the authority to open and close the earth? What kind of man has the authority to call fire down and consume their critics? No man does. And so, we assume it's over. No. No. Look at verse 41, same chapter. On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. It is always fascinating how in this sinful world, people side with the sinners. You notice that? You've killed the people of the Lord. You killed the people of the Lord. Well, that's the backdrop for Aaron's rod that budded. We go to chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get them or get from them a rod from each father's house. All their leaders according to their father's house, 12 rods, write each man's name on his rod. Instructions were simple. Each tribe will have one representative. They will have their rod, their walking staff. Put their name on it and bring it to God before the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 3, And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and each of their leaders gave him a rod apiece. For each leader, according to their father's house, twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord, to all the children of Israel and they looked and each man took his rod and the Lord said to Moses bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against was it say the rebels that you may put their murmurings away from me lest they die let's go back to Hebrews chapter 9 Hebrews chapter 9. We start with verse 4. 
which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The tablets of the covenant, if you read in the Amplified Version, it will tell you clearly the Ten Commandments. So inside, or next to, or in the proximity of this altar, excuse me, of this, I'm having an almost senior moment. <laughs> Ark of the Covenant. I'm almost Tom's age, you know. <laughs> in the Ark of the Covenant, you have the golden bowl of manna. You have Aaron's rod that budded. And you have the Ten Commandments. But you're saying, wait a minute, Moses broke those. God wrote another set. And they were there. And we'll study that in great detail when we get to that part of Moses' journey. So what do we get from this? I started out by asking the question, how do you live with someone who knows everything about you? Well, let's go back and look at the model. You have this beautiful Ark of the Covenant and two angels sitting on top of it. When the angels sit there, they look down, they represent heaven. Heaven looks down upon the top of the Ark. In the Ark, you have the three areas of rebellion that humanity has expressed toward God. Virtually every sin a person could commit will be found in one of those three areas. When heaven looks down at mankind, it sees man rebelling against God's provisions. God has provided abundantly and wonderfully, and we whine and we complain and we do not thank Him. It is an awful sin. Heaven looks down upon mankind and it sees man rebelling against God's appointed leaders to help us get from here to heaven. Many churches, the pastor walks around with a large target on their back. They are the afternoon meal for some congregations. Do you know... A church will never, ever prosper if that's their spirit. God will simply not bless them. In fact, that pastor may be a wonderful man, and what God will do for that pastor is remove him. And he'll give that congregation somebody equal to their spirituality, which means they ain't going nowhere. You get it? Then, when heaven looks down, it sees man rebelling against God's Ten Commandments, against His teachings, against His principles, against all that He is. So virtually every sin that man could commit is there in those three objects in the Ark of the Covenant. And God sees it all. God knows it all. God knows when we've been critical of leaders. God knows when we've been unthankful. God knows when we've been breaking His law. He knows all about it. We can't run from Him. We can't hide. He knows. How do you live with a God like that?
Well, notice the chapter goes on. Let's go to verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Jesus' ministry to us is greater than what happened in the tabernacle on earth. That's what is being said there. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In the earthly model, the blood was taken into the holy place. It was placed on the altar of incense and symbolically the blood went up in the smoke and steam and it was placed on top of the ark. Then the angels looking down representing heaven saw the blood instead of the sin and rebellion of man. Now think of that. That's the earthly tabernacle. Right now Jesus' blood covers our sins. God does not see any sin in us. If we're in Christ, we are not just forgiven. We appear before Him as people who have never sinned. It is the holy blood of our Savior that is seen by heaven. That's how you live with a God who knows everything. Because He has chosen not to see your sin. That blood is so powerful. That blood is so holy. That's why we sing about the blood. That's why we ask to be covered by the blood. That's why we pray to be cleansed by the blood. That blood was shed by God's Son to save us. And when God looks down on us from heaven, He does not see in us the vileness of the sinner that we are, but the likeness of His Son in whom we believe. Free! Holy in His eyes! Redeemed in His eyes! Not a rotten, no-good person that I really am, but the likeness of His Son in whom I believe. And I'm wondering if there's anyone here today who would like to say to the Lord, I want to be covered by the blood. Please stand if you want to tell Him that. Father in heaven, we praise You that you see the blood of Jesus covering us. We thank you in his name. Amen.